Well, good morning again. Uh, this is my final sermon for 2020, and uh, really thankful for the ways that all of you have been attentive to God's Word. Thankful, uh, I'm thankful to this church that allows me to spend my full-time job uh, working on um, doing other things, but putting sermons together to preach to you. So, so thankful. Uh, I've been praying that throughout this entire sermon series that the Lord would do more than we can ask or imagine. And I believe that he's done that in ways that are even indiscernible to us. Uh, but as we spend our final time in the book of Luke, um, today let's uh, ask the Lord again to bless his word. Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I wonder if you've ever stopped to consider why the gospel of Jesus Christ is said to be a stumbling block or foolishness or offensive. For many, the gospel is offensive because it calls you to renounce your idols. Uh, For others, the gospel is offensive is because uh, you consider it intellectual suicide. But I think for many of us here, I can't help but wonder if the offensiveness of the gospel is due to the call of Christ to own our weaknesses. See, Nowadays, we are told that we can be whoever we want to be, whatever we want to be. We are told that we are, in fact, not weak, but in fact, we are told that we are strong. We are strong enough to accomplish anything we're told to set, we can set our minds to. No one should tell us otherwise. And yet the message of Christmas breaks in and says, no, you're not strong. In fact, you're so weak that God had to come into the world to save you. And oh, by the way, this is really good news. Tim Keller says it well. He says it like this. He says, uh, Christmas is the end of thinking you are better than someone else. Because Christmas is telling you that you could never get to heaven on your own. God had to come to you. It is telling you that the people who are saved are not saved who have risen through their own ability to be what God wants them to be. Salvation, he says, comes to those who are willing to admit how weak they are. And so this is the message of Christmas. Own your weaknesses and come to Christ to be made strong. Own your weaknesses. Come to Jesus in order that you might be strong and have peace in Him. We've been seeing this week after week through the book of Luke, and we will see it again this morning. As we consider that Christmas story, just think about all the cast of characters around the birth. The first one that comes to us in Luke chapter 1 is Zechariah. Of all the characters, he's the most prominent of them all, being a priest. However, what is he known for but his lack of faith? And then we come to his wife there in Luke 1, Elizabeth, a righteous woman, we're told, a faithful woman of God. And yet in Luke chapter 1, verse 7, we learn that she is old and barren. Apparently, we even learn in verse 25 that uh, she had endured the reproaches of many for her barrenness. And yet her barrenness didn't stop her from loving the Lord. 
Those reproaches didn't stop her from loving the Lord. And yet it was through this aged, barren woman, full of the reproaches of the people, it's through that woman that God would use to bring about the forerunner to Christ Himself, John the Baptizer. And the angels would go on to say in verse 38 of chapter 1, that the reason why the Lord used Elizabeth so was to, so as to show the might of God, that he would bring about John the baptizer through a barren aged woman. The next character we meet, of course, is Mary, the mother of Christ. She is betrothed, meaning she is not yet married. More than likely, she's between the ages of 15 to 17, uh, a virgin woman betrothed to a simple carpenter by the name of Joseph. They're from a city called Nazareth, a city that uh, Nathaniel will later say, could anything good come from such a town? This town of Nazareth that they're from would be similar to the towns of Mayberry or Possum Trot, Kentucky. And so when Joseph and Mary, we even find that when they go to the temple on that eighth day to have Jesus circumcised, we see that they offer two turtle doves, which would have been the offering for a couple, for a couple in poverty. And so the earthly parents of the Christ child were poor teenage nobodies from a know-nothing town and an empty bank account. And all of this seemed to enthrall the godly Mary. Just listen to the song that she sang after being told about her role in redemption. And notice how Mary, there in Luke 1, 46-55, notice how she highlights this aspect of God using the weak so as to show the beauty of God. She sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Why does it magnify your soul, Mary? For or because he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in their, in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And then after this, in Luke 2, we read of a king. But this king is nothing but a pawn in the hands of God, so as to move Mary into the royal city of Bethlehem. And there, of course, in the city of Bethlehem, the Christ child is born, just as it was foretold hundreds of years before. And so we find that Jesus is not born in New York City. He's not born in L.A. He's not born in Tokyo, not born in Beijing, not born in Paris or Rome. Not even born in Jerusalem. Bethlehem. Not as ramshackle as Nazareth, but similar. And of course it is here, at least in the region of Bethlehem, we meet another cast of characters, the shepherds. I've always loved that poetic nature that we read of there in Luke 2 when it says, and in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. By the way, the fact that they're watching their flocks by night more than likely reveals the fact that Jesus' birth was sometime in the spring. But nevertheless, 
we learn these shepherds, we meet these shepherds, uh, and we find that when we actually look at them historically, we, we learn that these shepherds are not the romantic versions that we often have conjured up in our mind. These shepherds were the outcasts of society. And the fact that the glory of the Lord and the angels would then appear to them and sing reveals once again God's joy in highlighting the weakness of humanity so as to expose His great might. Shepherds, friends, were at the very bottom of the social ladder. Like women of their day, their testimony, shepherds' testimony, would not be admitted in a court of law. An ancient historian says, quote, to buy wool, milk, or a goat from a shepherd was forbidden on the assumption that it would be stolen property. And yet, the very first witnesses to the coming of Christ were from these lower class tradesmen. It was they whom God chose to spread the news of the coming of Christ. And then the next people we meet are Simeon and Anna. Simeon is announced, you'll notice, with no fanfare at all. He is described as nothing more than, quote, a man in Jerusalem. We might say a man in Washington, a man in Bethesda. He's thought to be an older man who has been waiting for the Lord's consolation. And it was upon seeing the Christ child that Simeon said those beautiful words in Luke 2, 29-32. As he held that baby and looked into his face with great joy, maybe tears in his eyes, he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus is our salvation. Have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all nations. A light for revelation to, or for, to all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles, to the nations. And for glory to your people Israel. And then, again, there's Anna, the prophetess from the tribe of Asher. Here's how she's described. She was, quote, advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. In other words, she didn't have any children. It doesn't sound like her husband died quickly, and she's remained a widow. She stayed in the temple giving thanks to God. And we find that the cast of characters only becomes more and more unheralded as Jesus grows to be a man and surrounds himself with people. We find those 12 disciples that he chose were later described as, quote, uneducated common men. Acts 4. Tax collectors, fishermen, and at least one political zealot. And then there were others that were surrounded around Jesus as he got older. There was Mary Magdalene that was famous for being demon-possessed. Then there was the bickering sisters of Mary and Martha. We had one prostitute, at least. Many others, I'm sure it sounds like. Another demon-possessed man by the name of Legion. A Samaritan leper. A woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. There were blind beggars. There were children. This, friends, is the company of Jesus. He would occasionally have the wealthy show up around him. He was glad to have them come and only to then tell them to sell it all and follow him. And when the crowds would press in, and they would, the crowds would press in, Jesus would then regularly preach and teach what we would now call pew-clearing sermons. In other words, he would preach so difficultly so as to sort of see who's going to stick after he says the truth. 
But the protagonists and the closest companions of Christ were a teenage virgin from a know-nothing town, the aged, the barren, the outcast shepherds, women, children, the sick, and 12 dudes that didn't even have a high school education and at least one wee little man named Zacchaeus. This is the company of Jesus, the weak. This is the company of Of the kingdom of God. This is whom God would build the kingdom of God through. Not the weak, but the forgotten. No cultural elites were to be found. And yet again, these were the ones of whom God would work through. And then we come to, of course, the star of the show. Jesus himself. The savior of the world. The one of whom John would later say that he was unworthy to untie his Birkenstocks. This one. The image of the invisible God. The heir of all things. The one of whom through God created the world. The radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of the nature of God. The one that upholds the universe by the word of his power, though he needed Mary to be fed. The one who was in the beginning. The one that was with God and was God. The one who was life and was the light of men. The one that was the light of the world. The one that was the Prince of Peace. The Lord of Lords. The wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. The one of whom the government was upon His shoulders. Jesus the Christ. So though He was in the form of God, He did not hold on to His glory. But instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by descending from heaven into the earth and being born and then laid in a feeding trough. A manger. That's how he came into the world. Laid in a manger. That was his calling card for the shepherds. Where is he? He's in swaddling cloths, laying in a feeding trough. And by the way, there was no room for him in the inn. I mean, he couldn't even find room for him at the Motel 6. Jesus would later own no home. He would never marry. He lived off of the generosity of others. and was eventually rejected by the crowds for no other reason than telling people who he actually was. We even find in his legendary sermon on the plain, we thought about this in Luke chapter 6. He said, Jesus said, blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who weep, those who are hated and excluded and spurned on account of following him. Those are the blessed ones, he said. And as if that wasn't enough, Jesus would go on to say, woe to those of you that are rich, full, laughing, and have the crowd speak well of you. He would even go on to say that the greatest among you is the greatest servant of all. And the reason he said this was because it described the reason why he came. He came not for the righteous, but for sinners. He came not to serve himself, but to serve others by laying his life down on the cross. In the epitome of weakness, Jesus conquered sin and death by being nailed to a cross as a payment for the sins of those of us that trust Him and treasure Him. In other words, Jesus won, beloved, by weakness. Weakness was the way to victory. Jared Wilson sums all of this up so well when he says, 
that Jesus was born in a dirty barn, grew up in a dirty world, got baptized in a muddy river. He put his hands on the oozing wounds of lepers, let whores brush his hair and soldiers pull it out. He went to dinner with dirt bags, both religious and irreligious. His closest friends were a collection of crude fishermen and cultural traders. He felt the spittle of the Pharisees on his face and the metal hooks of the jailer's whip in the flesh of his back. He got sweaty and dirty and bloody, and he took all of the sin and mess of the world onto himself, onto the cross to which he was nailed naked. In his work and in his words, Wilson says, Jesus is making promises to the beaten, the torn, the broken, the depressed, the desperate, the poor, the orphan, the abandoned, the cheated, the betrayed, the accused, the left behind. Wilson goes on to say that, quote, every religion has a man, has man in the gutter trying to figure out how to get to heaven. Only Christianity has heaven coming down to the gutter. So as we think about these things, it's easy to admire Jesus. But listen, I want you to hear this really clearly. It's easy to admire Jesus, but you cannot have him unless you are like those other characters. You cannot have him unless you too own your weakness. The way that Jesus comes to us is the way that we must come to him. Jesus came to the gutter because, beloved, that's where we are apart from him. We cannot work our way up to heaven and make ourselves beautiful any more than a mole rat can put on a fedora, put some lipstick on, throw some Air Jordans, and then present himself as beautiful. Right? Impossible. Impossible. But that's the beauty of Christmas. That is the beauty of Christmas. God saw our weakness and he loved us enough to enter into it. The Apostle Paul would later write that Jesus was rich and yet he became poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Emphasis there, implication there, we're weak, we're poor. Unless we stoop, we will not be found. You guys want to know when I started enjoying my Christianity? Uh, it, It wasn't... I wish I could say it was the day that I trusted Him. But it wasn't. The day that I really began enjoying Christ, enjoying His Word, was the day when I stopped trying to be somebody in the world. When I stopped trying to get everybody to love me and like me. Many of you know, I've told this story numerous times, many of you know, that uh, my SAT score was so bad that I wouldn't even tell it to my wife. I was taking it to the grave. And the whole reason for that was to try to protect my intellect. I didn't want to be exposed as being intellectually weak. The reality is, friends, I scored a 770 on the SAT. And if you don't know, you get like 400 points for signing your name. And that's not the worst thing about me. My sin that I still struggle with is the worst thing about me. I sometimes struggle to evangelize the lost. 
I struggle to care for the poor and the marginalized, the outcast like I should. I don't pray as often as I should. Far too often I want to, uh, to be right to the point of insistence sometimes. I long for comfort many times more than I long for faithfulness. I talk too much. Drives me crazy sometimes. Myself. And less important, these are not eternal things. I'm balding. I'm short. Uh, I have seven or eight pounds I can't seem to get rid of. No matter how hard I try. And maybe worst of all, I'm a Tennessee football fan. right? <laughs> Which is really rough. I'm not very funny. I don't know any famous people. My Twitter and Instagram followers are very, very, very few. And this morning, most all of the faithful sermons that will be preached in this city, most all of them, if not all of them, will be better than mine. But you know what? The King of Kings loves me. He came to get me. Bring me home. He not only knows all of my sins, He knew them before the foundation of the world. He still went to the cross for me. To pay for every single one of them. And He not only paid for them on the cross, He got up. And right now, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords prays for me. For me. And He knows that I need to be prayed for. How could I not love Him? How could I not trust Him? Treasure Him? How could I not want more of Him in my life? How could I, in other words, not own my weakness and go to Him for power, for might, for love, for strength in Him? How could I not? Jesus saw me on my worst day, not my best day. And he laid his life down for me. And Jesus calls me his friend and his brother. And so listen, I don't need to posture anymore. I've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. I don't need your approval and you don't need mine. I don't need to earn anything because I've been given everything in Christ. So listen, the moment, the moment that I begin to understand that I deserved hell, that's the moment that I began to look to Jesus and started to enjoy the prospect of heaven. That's when I really started to enjoy being a Christian. That's when I started to live in the freedom of my salvation. Stop trying to live and make a name for myself in the world and kind of be fit into the world, but instead started leaning in on Christ and become what He wants me to be. Clearly, He loves me. That's when I started to want more of Jesus, more of Jesus' people. That's when the Bible and prayer went from being an obligation to being a necessity because it was life to me. It is life to me. It's love. It's freedom. It's joy. It's my true identity. Because I already know what I'm like. You know what I'm like. God, more than all of us, knows what I'm like. And in Him, I have everything. 
Jesus took it all and I found peace in him. And I drink from the fountain of the wealth of Christ every day because I know that I'm weak, but I know that in him I'm strong. And friends, that's the secret to the world. That's not so much a secret. You can find it in any gospel-loving church. The world is trying to sell you and I a false bill of goods. They're trying to tell you that the path to everlasting life is self-affirmation and good intentions. In other words, strength in you. And it is literally killing people. It is a lie from the pits of hell. Life and joy is found in owning weakness and coming to Jesus to be strong in Him. So I'll finish with this. Do you remember that story probably last year sometime in Luke chapter 7 of the prostitute that comes to the dinner party? You should go back and read it this afternoon. There's this dinner party with Jesus eating with the town elites. So Jesus did have some rich and powerful friends. He was not all rice and beans. But there he is at that dinner party with a bunch of self-righteous types, those Pharisees, when that courageous woman came in and fell at Jesus' feet. She began to use her tears like a faucet to clean Jesus' feet and kiss them. And one of the Pharisees, you remember, began to think to himself that if Jesus was a prophet, he wouldn't let her do that because she's a sinner. Jesus, knowing the thoughts of that Pharisee, says to him, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. See, friends, that sinful woman understood the message of Christmas. She knew she was too weak to work her way to God. And so instead of trying to posture in society, instead of trying to clean herself up, instead what she did was not bring her good deeds to God, not bring her position to God, but instead what she did is she brought her tears to God in the person of Christ. She brought her love, her devotion, and she pleaded for mercy. And Jesus was happy to give mercy to her. Jesus was glad to take her shame, glad to take her guilt, glad to take her reputation. Jesus was glad to take her weakness up on the cross. He took it all because He loved her even more than she loved Him. And so while she sinned much, she was forgiven much. But beloved, it all began with that woman owning her weakness and going to Jesus in that weakness to be made strong. And so what about you? What about you at home? Do you know that your sins are many? Will you stop posturing as strong? Everybody knows it's not true. (laughs) Will you bring your love, your devotion? Will you bring your tears? Will you bring your weakness to Jesus? And if you will, You should know that He promises to forgive you and then lead you into the way of life and liberty and peace. The call then this Christmas, beloved, is to come to Jesus. Come to the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Bring your tired, your weary, your hopeless lives to His feet and find that peace that those angels sang about on that Christmas night. And if you've already done that, 
You've already come to Jesus. Well, listen, beloved, do it again and again and again and again and again and again. We could never work our way to God. But God so loved the world that He came to us. Own your weakness and find your peace in Him. For it is there that you will be found strong. Let's pray. Lord God, we are weak. Our sins are many. May we be broken over them instead of trying to position ourselves in the world. May we learn from that sinful woman, knowing that we are sinful ourselves. And may we come to Jesus. Instead of trying to bring all of our many accolades, may we just bring our tears. May we bring our weakness. And oh, the joy in knowing, Jesus, that you take it all. You take our weakness. You became weak so as to win that we might be strong in you. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the ascension. Thank you for the soon return. God, until you return, until as we wait, may we own our weakness. And Jesus, may we be found strong in you. We pray it in your name. Amen.